Good morning, Grace. I want you to turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, and while you are turning there, um, I just want to say how great it is to have you here. If you are new to Grace and we haven't had the chance to meet, man, stop by the next steps wall at the end of this service. You can get more information about Grace, find out how to get plugged in. And then we can do this really cool thing called uh, Dinner with the Pastors. And I say it's really cool just because, man, we have great food. And so uh, show up, have a good time, but you can sign up for that. But it it is so good to have you here. I've got one quick uh, order of business to get out of the way. For those of you that are members here at Grace, we have our annual business meeting taking place on the last Sunday of this month, 26th at 5 p.m. Now, even if you're not a member, you can still show up because you'll probably be interested. We're going to be discussing a lot, uh, future plans for development, uh, buying property, uh, buying land and building, uh, all of that. That's going to be a big part of the conversation uh, at our annual business meeting. But uh, if you go ahead and put that on your calendars, that would be great. But um, some of you know this, uh, Valentine's Day, it's coming, it's coming up, and I honestly forgot about it till this morning. And I went to my box, uh, I was just checking to see if somebody threw something in there, and I saw this stuck inside uh, Pastor Matt's box, and my box were uh, boxes of chocolates. Somebody said, I love you to their pastors, and that means a lot to us. In fact, I looked at the box that, that Pastor Matt had and had a cute little dog on front of it. Mine, on the other hand, has a cat that looks like it's getting ready to kill somebody. It's like the spawn of Satan right here. And so I'm just saying, man, like, I don't think people really love me as much as they love Matt. I'm just saying that. But guys, guys, get something for your girlfriend, your wife, uh, wives, girlfriends, do the same thing. Actually, you can probably get by Scott Free. They're probably going to forget all about it, so you're safe. But uh, man, I want us to keep on uh, going through the book of Judges. And today, I'm going to tell you just right, right up front, we're going to, to tell a story. We're going to look at a story that... I will tell you, as we're going through this, you are allowed to laugh. It was written to be comedy. We are actually reading, there is some comedy gold in the Word of God, and we're getting ready to read about it right here in Judges chapter 3. Now, here's what you got to know. In Judges, there's this, there's this crazy uh, cycle that repeats itself time and time again, and it's this. Israel will sin, they'll do something, they turn away from following God, worship idols, and that sort of thing. God will raise up a king to teach him a lesson, and they'll be under the subjection of this Canaanite king, or whatever the case happens to be, and it'll say, for X amount of years, they serve this king. Then, there'll be this other part, it's an almost, it happens time and time again, like six or eight times through Judges. Then it'll say, the people cried out to God, and God raised up for them a judge or deliverer or savior. That's where we get the name of the book, Judges. It's not like judge in a judicial sense where they were given to, you know, right or wrong. Because sometimes the judges were just as jacked up as the people were. But they were raised up to be a deliverer or a savior, a human, a small s savior, if you will. And, and so then there's, they're, they're given a savior. And then it'll say the, the land had peace. Israel had peace for X amount of years. And then it just repeats itself. Like it is the story of judges. And that's what I say. I think it's so relevant to where we are here today. It's just so, so relevant to where we are today. 
as we as we as we jump in here, um, we're, we're going to look at this. We're going to look at this account of a of a guy by the name of Ehud that God uh, that God raised up as a deliverer. But I don't want you to miss some of the craziness. Now it's interesting because in this period of time. Uh, this, for, if any of you guys are into archaeology or anything, there's, there's an archaeological period that would have, this would be this time in history called the Iron Age. If you've ever studied archaeology, the Hittites and that sort of thing are from this, this period. They were the, you know, the big world superpower back then. And in the Iron Age, Iron Age 1 specifically, there is no archaeological evidence that would substantiate the claim that the Israelites ever existed. You know why? They'd assimilated so much into their culture, there was no difference between the Israelites and the Canaanites. You can't tell the difference. It's very fascinating. Now, by the time David comes along, there, there's, there's archaeological evidence to support that. Je, this time of Judges, there's not, they, they, were, they were worshiping the, the same gods. Like They were just as wicked as their neighbors were. So what we see here is we pick up our reading in chapter three. And by the way, if you, if you're, if you were here with us last week, I told you, man, it was, God gave them three, three simple things to do. Number one, or to do and not to do. Number one, drive out the inhabitants of Canaan, drive them out completely. Number two, don't make any accommodation for them. Number three, do not worship their gods. Israel disregards every single thing that he asked of them. And so by the time we get here to, to chapter 3, verse 12, and, I, and by the way, I'm not highlighting every single one of the judges, or we will be here three years from now. Um, we're, we're taking a 30,000 foot view, coming down for a little from sections. I'm going to look at Ehud today. What we see in verse 12 is that the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. Now, real quick, what, what that means is uh, like you hear all those uh, Amalekites, Ammonites, Moabites, ites, 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 and you're like, you don't even know what they're talking about. This is actually cousins of Israel. Uh, the Moabites and uh, the Ammonites came directly from Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham. Uh, Lot had, it's just a jacked up story. You got to look, I'm not going to preach you, you preach on it. You look it up, it's in Genesis. Lot had kids with his daughters after a weird thing. It's just a whole weird thing. The kids' names were Moab and uh, Ben-Ami. That's, that's where the Moabites and Ammonites came from. The Malachites came from Esau. Esau was the brother of Jacob, the guy whose name was changed to Israel. So, so we're getting this. This is, this is a family thing. It shows, it shows the families matter. And so anyway, there's this, there's this war that breaks out. The Ammonites, Malachites, Moabites are against, are against them. And they took possession of the city of Palms. Now, when you see, read city of Palms, it doesn't mean anything to you. That's referring to Jericho. They took possession of Jericho. Interesting. This was the site of Israel's first victory in Canaan. And now it's, it's uh, Ground Zero Command Center for the opposing forces. In verse 14, we read, And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. This was 18 years in which they were under his rule. They had to take tribute to him uh, at least once a year at harvest time, probably other times a year as well. But 18 years where they were under the rule of the people that they had been asked to drive out and didn't. Here, 
Here's what we read next in verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Let me, let me pause real quick. How many left, left-handed people do we have? If you're left-handed, let me see your hand. Left-handed. All right. Lefties, come on. Did you know there are some advantages to being left-handed? There, 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 there really are. Um, lefties, lefties are more likely to be geniuses. Now, Jim Eisentrager, I'm not sure what there's, but no, statistically, statistically, you have a greater chance of having an IQ over 140 if you're a, le- uh, if you're a lefty. What's correlation? Nobody knows. Did you know that if you are left-handed, you can see better underwater than other people? I don't know why. You just can And I will tell you, as a person, I'm, I'm ambidextrous, but I think that's because I was born left-handed in a right-handed world, but... Like, have you ever tried to use scissors with the left hand? Right-handed people. Dude, literally, the little flap that goes over your zipper, right-handed people, I'm just telling you right now. And so, like, I, like my mom forced me to write with my right hand, and so, like, and, and then, when I started playing baseball, I'm, I'm ambidextrous, I could, I could throw with my left and my right. The only reason I throw with my right is because the only baseball glove I could find is for a right-handed player, and so I just learned to throw with my right hand. But I, I shoot a basketball left-handed, throw a football left-handed. So when I was playing basketball, I found out in high school, you use it to your advantage. It takes them at least a quarter to figure out that you're left-handed. You can score some points in the first quarter to get some, some things done. There are some advantages. Now, historically, though, historically, left-handedness has been viewed as a sign of weakness, in fact, even the, the, the words that we get for left-handed uh, speak to this. For instance, uh, the Latin word that, uh, that is, that, that from which we get left-handed is the Latin word sinister. That's nice. The French word that's translated uh, left-handed also means clumsy. Even the, the English word that we get weak, uh, I mean, that we get left-handed comes from an old English term that, that, that means weak. And then here in, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, it has multiple meanings as well. One of the meanings is south. Where do you think we get the word southpaw? Uh, southpaw com- comes from this. But, it, but it, also, it also means handicapped or, or disabled. And so as I was, I was studying through this, because it, it's, it's so interesting as you read this, and you're going to see there's some crazy stuff that's part of this. First of all, there's some irony in the fact that his name is Ehud. He's a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin means son of a right-handed man. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you guys, like I'm not making this up. You look it up for yourself. Like there, there's a lot of irony that is, that is employed here. But as, I, as, a, as I've studied this, while Benjaminites were known in battle, they could fight with either hand. The overwhelming amount of, of scholars that I, as, I, as I've researched this, almost to a person, believe that the reason this is important here is because his, at some point, his right hand had been crushed, or maybe he was born with a withered hand, or whatever the case happened to be. What, 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 whatever, whatever it means, this is a guy who doesn't fit in in the culture in which he lives. He's considered weak in some way. This is the guy that the Israelites choose to carry tribute with a group of people, he's expendable. You keep reading in verse 16, 
Though others might have viewed him this way, God was at work here. And this wasn't just Ehud's idea because it says that God raised up a deliverer. Look at verse 16. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Conceal and carry is not a new thing. (laughs) That was good. Uh, Anyway. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. In fact, the word Eglon means fat calf. Don't tell me that this isn't intended to be humorous. Like, this would have been a story that is so ludicrous that that people laugh when this is told. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried it, and he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret, secret message for you, O king. Eglon's like, dude, maybe you brought me a snack. And you know, it's Super Bowl day. How many of you, you know, don't even care about the game? You're all about the snacks. Let me see your hand. Yeah, I see you, I see you, I see you. Like he did what some of you are going to do to your kids when it comes to the queso dip. He sent everyone away. And what we see here is that after Eglon has sent everyone away, Ehud came to him, verse 20, as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he, and he, Eglon, arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Literally, the king never saw this coming. Remember, Ehud had... Uh, had a, had, a, had a crippled uh, right hand. Like, like Ehu, uh, Eglon would have never sent away people away if he thought this guy was a threat. This guy was not a threat. And yet, Ehud does this. It says in verse 22, and I, for some reason, I think a job of the hut here. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. I bet you didn't. I bet you guys haven't read Judges for a while. Like, I mean, this is here, man. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the, the cool chamber. Dude, like, like, why would they think that? Well, I'm not trying to be gross because it smelled like, well, anyway, you get what's going on. It's okay to acknowledge this. It's in the Bible. (laughs) Verse 25. They waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the door of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. And if you read the rest of the chapter, by the time that they figure out what had happened, Ehud had escaped. He'd assembled all the people of uh, all the, the tribes of Israel together. They, they went against the Moabites and here's and the Malachites and, and whoever defeated them. And here's what we read in verse 29. They killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. And so Moab was subdued that day under the, right, uh, under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. Yeah, when we were doing sermon prep, uh, Roe Dudley told me that I need to title this message, When Lefty Killed Hefty. And I'm like, I don't think that's going <laughs> to, I don't think that's going to work. But, uh, but there is a lot of humor and sarcasm in the story. But man, 
I don't, I don't want you to miss this. Eglon was not just some bumbling ruler. I mean, he, he, he was strategic. He had a plan. And then he held power for, for 18 years. But at the, at the end of this, he was no match for the God who actually had raised him up. You know, it's interesting because presidents and kings and queens and prime ministers and, and whoever else, it, a lot of times they're very impressed with their own importance, not remembering the fact that we serve a God who, who he might strengthen you, but he can also take that strength away. And there are three things that I, that I want us to look at as we go through this. And, and so, you know, as, as I'm preaching through the, the book of Judges, it's, it's unique because we are looking at, at, at history here. But, but, but history informs theology, right? Belief about God. We want to make sure that we understand uh, God well. And, and there are a few things that help us understand God and his ways. The first thing that, I want, that, that we see here that I want you to write down that I think even applies to us today is this. God's salvation has always been linked to weakness, to human weakness. God's salvation has always been linked to human weakness. And there are two, two ways that, that I want to hit this uh, quickly. The first is this. God's saviors have many, time been, many times been instruments of weakness. And so it's interesting, when you, when you go through the book of Judges, um, it's, it's just very interesting, this, this, this uh, actually kind of a regression that you see, in, first of all, in character. The first guy that's mentioned, the first judge we have mentioned at the beginning of chapter three, his name's Othniel. He's like the only judge that there's nothing negative talked about when it comes to his rule and, and his reign and all that. Then from, from Othniel forward, it's, it's like, you know, uh, positive and some negative, but then the further you go, you get to the end, it's, it's almost all negative, maybe a little positive. And so, so there are character issues with these judges, but then it's also unique. God is teaching Israel uh, a lesson too. Because the, the, the first guy here, Ehud, you know, for, first of all, he, he kills the, the king, but then all of the tribes of Israel come together to fight and they win this victory in the name of the, the Lord. But you get to the next uh, judge, and we'll be looking at, at, at this, I think, next week. It's, it's Deborah, and, and she, she was with a, another guy, kind of a co-leader with a kind of a weak guy, a cowardly guy by the name of Barak. And he, when you study this, like, like the fact that the Deborah was raised, and it actually messed with a lot of the Israel, you know, Israelite stereotypes of, of women and their ideas of, of strength, and yet what God did through them you couldn't deny it, but, but when they brought the army together to defeat the enemy, it was only two tribes of Israel. Well, by the time you get to Gideon, Gideon is kind of a timid guy who eventually trusts God. It takes him a while to get there, but he eventually trusts God and trusts God enough to go to battle against the mighty Midianites with only 300 men. And God wins this, this tremendous, uh, you know, tremendous victory. By the time you get to, to a guy by the name of Samson, who is known for his great strength, it's interesting. It wasn't that the Israelites followed him into battle. In fact, what we'll see through Samson's story, the Israelites actually came to kind of capture him him to give him to the Philistines, to the enemy. And he ends up, he ends up against the Philistines, uh, taking, taking out a big part of their, their army with a jawbone of a donkey. But again, it's one guy. Here's, here's what God's doing though. He, he, he's just increasingly making sure the Israelites understand, listen, I don't need all of your might and your strength. I can win with one guy and the jawbone of a donkey. Like that's what it takes. I, I, just, I, I, I just need, you trust me. 
But it's very interesting that when we, when we see, that, see this, that these, these saviors are moving from strengths to weakness. And, and I think what this reveals is that most of the judges, God has to raise them up because the people themselves don't necessarily see them as a person that they're going to follow. A lot of times when God is working and God is stirring, God's work goes unnoticed because it doesn't look like what we think it should look like. It just doesn't look, I, man, let's, let's just talk about the biggest savior, Jesus. When Jesus showed up on the scene, here's how the prophet Isaiah foretold what, what, what it was going to look like. He talks about him in Isaiah 53. And in verse 2, it says that he had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. When you look at the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you look at Jesus' ministry, like the, the, the Roman emperors, they, they didn't even know this guy existed. Herod, who was, a, who was a regional ruler, he knew that he existed, but only because he'd heard about miracles and he thought John Baptist came back from the dead. He's like, hey, I want to see this guy. Uh, amuse me. He had no idea of who Jesus really was. Jesus didn't look like Jim Cavazil from, from Passion of the Christ. I'm just telling you. No, he was a man of sorrow, well acquainted with grief. When he came to his own, the apostle John writes in John 1.11, his own didn't even receive him. Why? Because he didn't look like a savior. That's why Paul wrote that Jesus was a stumbling block to both the Jews and the Greeks. Why? Because he didn't fit the profile. They were looking for God to do something else. They wanted the big, the powerful, the mighty, they want Dwayne Johnson. That's who we're looking for. Not the way it works. And guys, I think that today, a lot of times, we are still enamored with power, with strength of this world. Do not be fooled. Jesus is still king of kings, lord of lords, president of presidents, judge of judges, prime minister of prime ministers, he's still the answer. He is the savior of all saviors. There's a well-known skeptic. He's, it's funny because like on the New York Times bestseller list, they call him a religious writer. He's, he's really, he writes about religion, but he is anything but a believer. His name is Bart Ehrman. And somebody asked, uh, asked Bart, they said, do you believe that Jesus was who he said he was? And he said, no. And they said, what would, you what would he have to do for you to believe that? And he's like, he would have to end all suffering. And I'll never have the chance probably to have a conversation with Bart, but I think there's a good follow-up question to ask. What if Jesus had a different way of defeating evil? What if our main problem wasn't suffering here on earth, but it was separation from God? What if the real tragedy was not that we suffer cancer, it's a very real thing, but, but, but the, the tragedy is that there is something called eternal death and Jesus came to provide a way for us to have eternal life and life more abundantly. What if Jesus saved us by removing the curse, by suffering in our place, and then stabbing death in the heart by his resurrection? What if Jesus didn't look like what you think Jesus should look like? What if the Savior is something totally different? different. We've been missing the Savior for years. But God has always used weakness. His saviors, small s saviors, have themselves been weak. 
Jesus himself, when he showed up, set aside his dignity, he set aside his royalty, his strength, everything that he could have done. He literally became like one of us and he died for us. This has always been God's plan. But God also saves through the quote-unquote weakness of faith. He saves through the weakness of faith. When I see Israel crying out here in verse 15, honestly, I think it's a picture of every single person that's ever lived. We, we all at some point get to a place we know that we need salvation. We need saving from circumstances, perhaps. We, we don't even know what's causing the problem. We don't know what's, what's enslaving us, but, but we cry out to be delivered. We're driven to be free from something. We're all in search for salvation somewhere. You know, last, last week, the, the, the Grammys that took place, like, I'm not a huge culture hater. There, there's some things that I think we can actually learn by studying some things. But, dude, that, the Grammys last, uh, what, what they celebrated was a bunch of crap. I'm just going to call it what it is. If you're going to email me for saying that word, it's right here in the Bible. I just read it. It came out of Eglon. Like, it's right there. Okay? Hold your emails. Because that's exactly what it was. Well, Madonna was in the news, and... and and, and, you know, like her fans were worried about her because her appearance had changed and all that sort of thing. Here's the deal, man. A few years ago, Madonna gave us, and I appreciate her, honestly. She, like, opened herself up and said, here's, here's, here's who I am. And several years ago, she was, at, she was asked, what drives you? And she said, she said this. She said, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. She said, that is always pushing me. She said, I pushed past one spell of it and I discovered, my, I discovered myself as a special human being, but then I feel like I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and I guess it never will. Here's the deal. She's just saying what we've all felt at some point and we've never figured out how to articulate. Look, I... I appreciate her honesty. This is why Paul, he's writing Philippians chapter three. Man, he lists all of his accomplishments. He lists all that he's done, his resume, his pedigree, and all of that, what he did to keep the law. And he said, man, I was the Jew of the Jew, the Pharisee of the Pharisees. Man, I was trained under this guy. I had it all. But he said this, he came to a place that he says in verse eight, he said, I count it all as dung. The stuff that came out of Eglon. He said, I count it all as dung when compared to what I have in Christ by faith. But he refers to this faith in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 31 as foolish. It's considered foolishness by the world. You know why? Because we're seeking for salvation and we want to earn this. And it's foolish because it's received, not achieved. And so we can't stand on, look what I did. Guys, if that's where you're looking, listen, we're all gonna come to a place that we hit that wall. We have nothing left in the tank. The foolishness of faith is when we believe that what Christ did was enough and what Christ did counts for all eternity that we can be saved. Not because we're that good. Not because we're that powerful. But because what Christ did on the cross was that good and that powerful. You see, God has always, always included in his plan for salvation. He's tied it in some way to this weakness. The foolishness or the weakness of faith in Christ is our strength. Man, I gotta keep moving. The second thing I want us to understand is this. God finds humor in human opposition to him. 
God finds humor in human opposition to him. Again, this story is told as a joke. It's intended to be hilarious. They would have laughed when this is told. It is, it is meant to be interpreted that way. And, and the reason why this is so ludicrous is, is you know, the, just everything about it. it. It just speaks to the ludicrousness of this guy thinking that he's large and in charge. Charles Spurgeon one time said in one of his messages like this. He said, us trying to pose God is like a gnat on a railroad track trying to stop a locomotive. He said, it's just, it can't be done. Don't, don't even try. And what we, what we know is that God can't and won't be stopped. Those who stand against God, they have a day when they look like they're in charge. They have a day when it looks like they have influence. But there's coming a day when God takes down what he set up. Because he's sovereign. His sovereign plan cannot be thwarted. Now, we're part of this. In fact, did you know that, that we, church, have a responsibility to be part of this? He will always include his people in his purposes. I don't, I don't know if some of you guys have heard, uh, man, be praying for our state legislators and that sort of thing, some of the crazy stuff that's going on in our state. Um, uh, they're, they're in attack. We have several that attend here at Grace, and I'm so thankful for their witness, but tomorrow, Satanists are gathering at our state capitol, and they're going to have a, a gender affirmation ritual to welcome people into the church of Satan. I mean, on the second floor of the, of the state capitol. Now, here's the deal. I, I have no hatred or anything towards Satanists, towards anybody that's going to be participating, because we, you got to understand, we got to quit fighting. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We, we got to go and fight people. We're, we're, man, th this is a spiritual battle that's taking place. And so I was, I was talking to, to Brent Crane, and I, I just reached out and said, man, I'm praying for you. You know, how are things going? And he, and he had told me, he said, I don't know if you've heard what's going on. He told me, you know, this, this whole thing. And uh, so, well, man, I'm going to be praying. But he goes, man, I said, he said, I just wish we could have a prayer and pray service here. And I thought, like, dude, you know what? We actually could do that. Why in the world wouldn't we do that? And so, you guys are all invited. 3 p.m., I've reserved the steps of the state capitol tomorrow at 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. And we're going to sing, and we're going to pray. And, and, and here, here, here's my thing, like, we're, I, I'm not going up there, but like, if you, if, if, if you want to show up and protest and fight, you're showing up to the wrong thing. I don't need your signs. I need, man, we need your prayers. We're going to pray and we're going to praise. Because I still believe the greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Opposition to God is a punchline in heaven. Now, we know that God's going to judge this. But can I tell you, we got to stop being fearful of evil and fearful. Now, should we acknowledge the fact that there is evil? 100%. We don't mess around with this. But we got to remember that as the children of God, we serve a God who is able, a God who is greater. It's time for us to stop playing games and just say we belong to the Most High. Let's, let's ask him to move. And, and let's not be shocked when he actually does that. So, yeah, tomorrow morning, man, you got, a, you got an invitation. Uh, well, I got to work. Um, I, I get it. Like, like, seriously, I know that not everybody can be. It's a last-second thing. Show up. If you can, I don't care if there's seven people, 50 people, or 100 people, we're just gonna pray and we're, gonna, we're, we're going to sing. And I'm gonna do this because 
I, I, I want everybody to remember that God's still large and in charge. God finds humor in opposition to him. I'm going to leave you with, with this. Another thing that I, that I see as I'm reading through here. Another reason why this is the relevance, is so relevant for today, is that God for centuries has valued something that we don't always value. For centuries, this has been true. It is as true today as it was in the time in which Ehud lived in, in Judges chapter three. God values availability over ability. God values availability over ability. You know why? Because he does not need what you and I bring to the table in terms of let us show you how strong we are. He doesn't, he doesn't, he has all of the might. He has all of the power. He has all of the grace. He has all of the love. What he needs is just your willingness to be on his team to say yes. And I think a lot of times we, we value the strong or the articulate, the rich, the powerful. God doesn't need Jeff Bezos' wealth. Now, I'd like to have a little bit of a swing by the land and build this building, but God doesn't. God doesn't, God doesn't need Elon Musk's brain. He doesn't need Jordan Peterson's communication skills. He just needs your availability. I, I look at Ehud. Ehud was an unlikely hero. But dude, what I love about this guy is that he didn't let his past or his handicap or what other people thought of him get in the way. What I love about this dude is that he was available. Jesus can do more in a minute than you and I can do in a lifetime. Remember what he did for, with the little kid's uh, uh, bread and fish? Like, man, he took, he, he took five pieces of bread and two fish and opened an all-you-can-eat buffet. Like, like he <laughs> killed it. Like, this is, this is what God does. He needs everyday, ordinary people who don't need to, to have everything figured out, to know how the story is, to have all their act together. He doesn't, he doesn't need that. He just needs people who are faithful enough to just say yes. Yeah, man, I'll take advantage of the opportunity that I have with my kids and grandkids to point them to Jesus. Moms, dads, you matter. Aunts, uncles, you matter. Grandparents, you matter. Say yes. Well, I don't know I'm making a difference. Leave it up to God. He needs people to say yes. Right, right here in our community. That'll, that'll stand up and, and man, they, they, they will love and they'll stand for truth, but they'll do it in a loving way. Man, that, that'll reach out, that'll, that'll make a difference. He, he just needs your yes. He, man, I've heard some incredible stories of what God's been doing. Like, literally, there's, there's a guy that attends our, our church. I just talked to him this morning who showed up here and God changed his life and it all started with a casserole. A neighbor who loves Jesus knew that he had lost his wife and she made a casserole. He wanted to have nothing to do with church. He's told me a story. He said, but man, he said the fact that somebody reached out to me, he said, I told him when they brought the casserole over, why don't you come in and eat it with me? And he said, and that started a friendship. And he said, when I found out who they were, 
I wanted the Jesus that they served, and that's why I showed up. And God, man, the rest of the story, man, God's changed his life. And it's like, what? No, I gotta have this. I got, I gotta have. No, I can't. I'm under, I'm unqualified. I don't have this. What you're saying is, you're just saying, I'm not right-handed, God. He's like, I don't need your right hand of strength. I need your left hand of availability. Let me show you what I can do. Man, a guy that over the years has become, the more I've thought about this this story, I really like this guy. Never met him because he lived years and years and years ago. His name's Edward Kimball. And this was a guy who was just an ordinary guy living in Chicago that said yes when his church said we need a Sunday school teacher to teach teenage boys class. Here's the deal. If you're a teenager here, dude, I, we have the greatest teens in the world to go to Grace Bible Church, and I know that you are perfect. <laughs> but your friends aren't, okay? So, like, like, it's everybody else but you. Like, a high, you know, like, a, like it was ages 13 to 19. It, this class, they cut up just like, like I did when I was a teenager and like you did too. Well, in this class was a kid that had actually moved to Chicago uh, to, to live with his family there. I think it was his uncle owned a business and so he'd been working for, he, he moved there so he could learn a trade, learn a job. He's in this class and he was as ornery as everybody else. But man, Edward Kimball, he'd volunteered, he showed up and he taught, but man, he also did something else. He didn't just do a job on Sunday. He went home and dude, he would pray for these guys throughout the week by name. He'd pray for them. And, and as he was praying for this, this one kid one day, he, he said he just felt impressed and he needed to go talk to this kid about the Lord. And so he knew that he worked uh, downtown Chicago. He, was, he had a, uh, worked at his uncle's shoe store. He goes to the shoe store, just tells us, man, God sent me here, you know, outlines the gospel. And said, man, I just feel like, man, he's calling you. And, and man, it's, it's up to you what you're going to respond. Long story short, the guy ends up giving his heart to Jesus Christ, this teenage, this t- teenager. Long story short, shortly after he gives his life to Jesus Christ, this kid feels like God's starting to call him to preach. And he gives God every excuse why he can't do it because he doesn't, he doesn't have this education, he doesn't have the background and all of this. And, and he, he just, it was so strong that he literally just started speaking wherever he had the opportunity. Long story short, man, people, th- there was like something, he, he didn't say everything the right way, he didn't use the, the, the best English, uh, his grammar wasn't perfect, but people, like there was an undeniable move of God and people started showing up and he started like going everywhere and like, it, it's estimated by the end of his ministry that over, over one million people were led to the Lord by this young man, his name was D.L. Moody. Now, D.L. Moody was actually in Chicago speaking and a professional baseball player came to hear him speak. This professional baseball player played for the White Sox, and he had showed up just uh, kind of out of curiosity, but also he was kind of sarcastic. And, and as he was there, though, man, conviction gripped his heart. And before the night was over, he had actually had an invitation given his life to Jesus Christ. Shortly after that, as, as, as he began to, to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, God called him to do something radical. He said, I haven't called you to be a baseball player. I want you to preach the gospel. And this guy did the unthinkable at that time. He, he left a good job of being a baseball player and became a preacher. And this guy began to speak around Chicago, and then it began to spread. And it's estimated that over 300,000 people gave their lives to the ministry of this guy by the name of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was speaking one time uh, uh, around Kentucky, 
and uh, a, a, a redneck, a hick from, from, uh, from Kentucky showed up to hear him preach. And while he was there, this, this young guy, man, was so convicted by his need for the Lord that, he, that when the invitation was given, like he, he, he couldn't help but respond. Man, he, he responded and, and God changed his life forever. It wasn't long as he began to follow Jesus that again, this guy also, God began to call him to preach and he made all the excuses why he couldn't preach and why he shouldn't do this and why he couldn't be called. And, and long, long story short, God didn't take any of the excuses. He just took his availability. This guy began to speak and God began to use him. And it's, it's estimated that again, over 300, and, it's, it's estimated 330,000 people gave their lives to Jesus Christ and the ministry of Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham was, was, was uh, having a, a uh, camp meeting in, in North Carolina, and it had been like a 10-day thing. Many different people come and give their lives to Jesus Christ, and, and on this particular night, there, there hadn't been a ton of people giving their life to Jesus Christ. In fact, in his journal, uh, he, he reveals that he was very disappointed in his delivery of the message that God had given him. But that night, there was a young man who was raised in a nominal Christian home, a Presbyterian. They, they went to church on Christmas and Easter, and that was about it. But this guy, his heart was captivated by what he heard. And man, he responded to the invitation, and God changed this young man's life. And again, in a very similar fashion, within a few years, well, actually just within the next few months and, and early years of following Jesus, God had called this young man to ministry, and he began to share. And it's estimated that well over three million people gave their life to Jesus Christ under the ministry of Billy Graham. I did the math. There's five to six million people who will be in heaven for all of eternity whose lives are absolutely transformed and who knows the ripple effect through families, through other generations, because of a guy by the name of Edward Kimball said yes. And he didn't ask for guys like, oh man, I can't do this. I'm not seeing any fruit here. He just said yes. And God did the rest. I wonder, church, what would happen if instead of putting God in a box and saying, you're gonna move when it looks like this, you're only gonna use people if they look like this, what would happen if we just said yes and we went out and made a difference as coaches, as mechanics, as lawyers, as wherever it is that God sends us and we did everything in the name of God? Look, I'm gonna tell you right now, we don't know what's gonna happen, but all I know is that when God's people just say yes, God does what we can't do. All he needs is our availability. This whole, man, this whole account, this crazy, messed up, funny story shows us that God's salvation has always involved human weakness. God is not stopped by opposition. He laughs at opposition. But it also shows that God is looking for our availability and not our ability. Will you say yes? God, as we close our time together, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power that's in your word. I thank you that even in this crazy kind of funny, it's really a funny story here in scripture as we're studying the history of your people, 
that even though, man, they, we, we see the, the lukewarmness and, and the church going back and your people going back and forth, dear God, we see your faithfulness in, in raising up people, not perfect people, fallible people, but people that you use. God, I have no idea what your plan is for each person here. And, and honestly, I think we need to stop waiting for this miraculous call to go do something. We just need to say yes to the opportunities you've given us right now. To say yes to, to be a good neighbor, to say yes to love our families and, and point them to Jesus, to say yes to be just intentional. And God would just leave the fruit to you because you can do more in a minute than we can do in a lifetime. But God, if we'll just say yes, your yes changes everything. And so God, for what we're learning and for what you're gonna continue to teach us in the days to come, we thank you. God, I pray for what's gonna take place tomorrow. Already, I'm praying not, not, for, not for craziness and fighting. We don't need any more of that. But as we praise and as we pray, may your name be magnified, may you be glorified, and may you show off. And for what you're gonna do, we thank you for this and we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. All right, tomorrow. Like if somebody needs a ride, you need a carpool, whatever, show up here. Uh, we got to be there by 2.45 at the latest. It's going to start at 3, but I hope you can join us. We'll see you next week.